Bite Size Birthday Biography Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Mira. This is a podcast which shines a spotlight on a person born on this day at some point in history, somewhere in the world, who made a positive, lasting impact. Today, May 13th, we're going to talk about Dr. George Papanicolo, the creator of the pap smear. So in case the intro didn't tip you off, we're going to be talking about a lot of OBGYN stuff today. So words like vagina and cervix are just going to be thrown around here like a bunch of confetti. We're also going to be dealing with some discussion about masturbation. And I hope y'all are mature enough to understand that women have body parts and those body parts have names. And trust me, vagina is not any of a sillier word than prostate. And masturbation is just a fact of life. But if you are made uncomfortable by the mention of lady bits or self-love, please skip this episode. I also want to point out that today's episode is about Dr. Papanicolo, but it's also kind of about his wife, Andromachi Mavrogini. Mary, as she was commonly known, volunteered herself as a guinea pig for her husband's discovery and allowed her own cervix to be sampled every single day for over two decades to help ensure that his work would be as successful, as helpful, and far-reaching as possible. So our narrative today really has two key players. So diving into the man that created the simple test that reduced the mortality rate of cervical cancer by 70%, we find ourselves on the island of Euboea, the second largest one off the coast of Greece. On the eastern coast of this island, about halfway between each tip, is the town of Kimi. And on this island was the Papa Niccolo family, headed by a successful physician father, which boasted four children. And one of these was a boy named George. George was a good student, but he was inclined towards the arts. So when he was accepted into the University of Athens, it was actually his father who talked him out of studying music and humanities and gently pushed him towards medicine. And George found out that he loved medicine more than he ever thought he could. And this modest, hardworking young man graduated with his MD and the school's top honors in 1904. Right after he graduated, he took a post as an assistant surgeon in the military before returning to his hometown of Kimi to take the very undesirable job of physician to a leper colony on the outskirts of town. Lepers, for those of us not up on our old diseases, is today called Hansen's disease. And it's a bacterial disease that basically causes like skin sores and lesions and nerve damage. Uh, today, thanks to antibiotics and hygiene and just science in general, it's super rare. But prior to the advent of life-saving medicine, it was a chronic and incurable disease that literally ate you alive. Because it was so contagious and so grossly disfiguring and impossible to disguise, anyone showing any signs was quickly carted out of town to basically be dumped into a shanty town to await death. No medical staff wanted to be stationed there, and care in many countries often fell to religious volunteers like nuns. But George was a man of compassion and honor, and he went to work in the colony, providing not only medical treatment, but also taking the time to talk to them and to assure these people that they were still cared for, at least by him. So after a few years of selfless service, I mean, even by doctor standards, the pay for working with social outcasts cannot have been enviable. George decided he wanted to further his studies, and he moved to Germany to attend the University of Munich, and he graduated in 1910 with a PhD in zoology. So it was about this time that George took a fortuitous ferry ride. While on the ferry to Athens, George met his future wife, Mary. 
Mary was charmed by the kind and intelligent George, but Mary was no slouch herself. Mary was a direct descendant of the, try and say this right here, <clears throat> of the Fanariote, the Fanariote Mavroginis family. And they were this militarily legendary family whose name was made famous after boldly fighting the Ottomans during the Greek War of Independence. As such, Mary came from prestige and privilege, and she had the breeding to show for it. She was delightful, she was bright, multilingual, a gifted pianist, so these two were just a great match for each other, and they ended up eloping shortly after George uh, finished his final paperwork for his doctoral dissertation. George really wanted to move to America and continue his career there, but his mother was really ill, and he didn't want to leave while she was sick. So he stayed in Greece and took care of her until she passed in 1913. And then him and Mary got onto a boat and they crossed over to the U.S. When they crossed over, they only had $250 to their names. And this was the minimum amount of money required to enter the country at this time. Because both him and Mary spoke zero English, they had to take minimum wage jobs. So Mary, the daughter of this wealthy illustrious military family, took a job at Gimbel's department store in Midtown Manhattan sewing buttons for $5 a week. And Dr. George Pompanicolo, the man with an MD and a PhD, did everything from selling rugs to being a clerk at a newspaper to playing violin at restaurants. Also, I'm sorry for the cat chorus in the background there. My cat is not a big fan of history podcasts. So MD, PhD aside, Dr. P is working minimum wage jobs for over a year before he finally manages to get a medicine-related job, working part-time in a pathology lab as a researcher at what was then called New York Hospital. Language barrier aside, his colleagues finally came to see that this guy was actually quite brilliant and word got around the community and he quickly moved over to a full-time research position in Cornell University's anatomy department. And it was here that he would start to carve out his legacy, tackling cervical cancer, which was the leading cause of death in women at that time, taking over 40,000 lives a year. He did that, or he started that there, and then he moved over and settled into New York Presbyterian slash Whale Cornell Medical Center for the next 47 years, with his wife Mary coming along as a technician. Now, yes, Dr. P was indeed a doctor, but not legally. He had no license to practice on patients in the U.S. So this is where his wife, Mary, came into play. George needed women to sample cervical cells from, and since he could not technically see patients, his wife became patient zero. And so for 21 years, she would offer up her cervix every day for the sake of science. Dr. P could test on animals, though, so he began to study guinea pig private parts. And he noticed that, like women... Female guinea pigs have changes in bodily secretions based on where they were at in their cycle. And this led him to start swabbing. And through this simple step, he was overjoyed to find he could clearly see the difference in healthy and unhealthy cells under a microscope, which led him to wonder if cancer cells could be swabbed from a cervix to provide early detection. He was finally allowed to observe patients at Cornell's gynecological clinic where women were being diagnosed with cervical and uterine cancer but at super advanced stages when there was way more obvious symptoms than just mutated cells like abnormal bleeding or abdominal pain. And usually if you're showing signs like that, like abnormal bleeding or abdominal pain, you probably have pretty advanced cancer to the point where you you may not make it basically. So like his uh, guinea pigs, he began to sample women, um, healthy and unhealthy cervixes, and he was able to see clear differences in the appearance of cells. 
and this was like a eureka moment. Why wait until a woman was showing clear signs of advanced cervical cancer? At that point, the prognosis was grim at best. So why not sample cervixes in a minimally invasive manner on a regular schedule to catch mutations early? Brilliant. So Dr. P presents his findings at the oddly named Third Race Betterment Conference in January of 1928 at the Battle Creek Sanitarium in Battle Creek, Michigan. And we need to talk about this really problematic conference for a second. So the Race Betterment Conference, um, as if the name wasn't a tip-off, was the brainchild of three white guys, neoclassical economist Irving Fisher, biologist Dr. Charles Davenport, and the inventor of cornflakes, Dr. John Harvey Kellogg. So at this point, Dr. Kellogg's legacy of health eccentricities is almost as notorious as his breakfast cereal. Kellogg was an ardent critic of anything involving sex, including both intercourse and masturbation, or as he called it, self-pollution. Kellogg believed that when a person had sex, they lost a part of their physical and mental health. As such, he advocated for a life of celibacy. He and his wife not only never consummated their marriage, but they slept in separate rooms for their whole life. They obviously never had kids, but they ended up adopting eight kids and fostering 42. So Kellogg firmly believed in abstaining from anything he felt was either unhealthy or that might inflame his libido. He even felt that there were symptoms of being a masturbator, including a craving for spicy foods, acne, bad posture, and seizures, among other things. So on one hand, though, Dr. Kellogg's assertions that one would be better off eating a vegetarian diet and not smoking, not drinking, exercising, drinking eight to 10 glasses of water, getting fresh air and sunshine... Back then, everyone thought those things were ludicrous, right? But today, we know these are all quite scientifically astute theories. And he was also the first doctor to really lean hard on the theory that your GI flora has major impacts on your overall health. Yet, on the other hand, his claims about sex and eating meat, making you want to have sex, and giving yourself yogurt enemas, and his ideas that masturbation causes cancer, we can all have a good chuckle about those things today. But it was his theory that eating meat causes one to crave carnal relations that I want to talk about for a second, because that one led him to the breakfast legacy that enshrines his name today. Dr. Kellogg felt the way to avoid the desire for masturbation and sex was to eat a lot of grains and nuts, which, I mean, I get, they're not very sexy foods. And this led him to experiment with cornmeal and oatmeal baked into biscuits and then broken up and eaten cold with milk, which evolved into cornflakes. So coming back to this third race betterment conference, Dr. Kellogg, like I mentioned, had teamed up with Irving Fisher and Dr. Davenport because what does an economist, a biologist, and a sex-hating doctor all have in common? They were all eugenicists. So all the rage for white people at the time, eugenics was the theory that the overall genetic quality of the human race could be improved by such practices as forced sterilization of the poor and the mentally ill. This theory, based on the history-old concept of a superior race, goes back to Plato when he first discussed selective breeding. It was very popular in America and Europe up until the Holocaust, and then people were like, oh, that's what happens when eugenics is put into practice. And this discriminatory fad ideology shriveled up, and today its only proponents are either avowed or closeted white supremacists. So this conference would be the last one, as World War II and its aftermath kind of put a damper on that. But at this meeting, Dr. P gave his presentation about how routine cervical scraping can help detect gynecological cancers early on. So he has all this research and he's super jazzed about what this means for oncology and cancer and women in general. And 
crickets, like nobody got it or no one was excited by it. And why is that? There's a couple reasons. One, exfoliative cytology, right, or the scraping of a surface for cell samples was not a common practice, and most doctors preferred to do actual biopsies for cancer diagnosis. Biopsy is obviously much more involved, and it's not one that a woman would want to undergo routinely. I mean, I can't imagine getting a biopsy, you know, once a year. I mean, even pap smears are, are no day at the beach. Second, Dr. P was a dark-haired immigrant with a very limited grasp on English, which obviously didn't endear him to a bunch of white eugenicists. He had to write his own research paper himself, and as a result, there were enough misspellings and errors to make his findings seem amateur. Third, his spoken English wasn't much better, and he struggled to accurately get his point across. So when he left the conference, no one was really gung-ho or even really convinced about this truly incredible, low-cost, minimally invasive way to save the lives of millions of women over the coming decades. And this was quite disillusioning for him, and he did not write or speak on the subject again for over a decade. But it seemed that people were starting to talk a little bit about it behind his back, not in a bad way. In 1940, he was actually awarded the Borden Award of the Association of American Medical Colleges. In 1941, he published a paper on uterine cancer alongside Dr. Herbert Trout. Two years later, he brought forth over 3,000 cases with illustrated monographs. And now the medical community as a whole started to perk up its collective ears a lot more. Over the next decade, he'd be awarded multiple honors and medals, including several Nobel Prize nominations. The fact that he never actually won the Nobel Prize, in my opinion, is is an outrage. I mean, there's a lot of good inventions and discoveries in the medical field during the 40s and 50s that totally deserve to win. There was the invention of penicillin, the discovery of how to cure yellow fever. Uh, Someone figured out that DDT was a toxic poison. Uh, But there were also a few winning discoveries that seemed like they could be easily eclipsed by a discovery that brought the mortality rate of cervical cancer down by 70%. Like in 1943, the Nobel Prize in medicine was given to the guy who discovered vitamin K. Vitamin K, like what the hell is vitamin K even? So, So George never really got what he deserved, I think. And that was a Nobel Prize for the discovery that saved all these lives over the last 60 plus years. His homeland did honor him, though, by bestowing the Cross of the Grand Commander, which is the highest honor you can get in Greece. He got that in 1953. The following year, he released his seminal work, The Atlas of Exfoliative Cytology, laying the foundation for the new field of cytopathology. And in 1962, at the age of 78, when most people would think about retiring or at least slowing down, Dr. P found a cancer research institute, or sorry, founded, he founded, he founded the Cancer Research Institute. I don't know how you just find a research institute. So he founds this Cancer Research Institute in Miami. But sadly, weeks after he got this thing rolling, he had a massive heart attack and he died. So he passes away at the age of 78. Um, He's survived by Mary, and the Miami Cancer Research Institute was renamed the Papa Niccolo Cancer Research Institute. In 1978, a stamp with his image was released by the U.S. Postal System, and between 1995 and 2001, his face was on the Greek 10,000 drachma baked note until it was replaced by the euro. My sources today were Wikipedia, the U.S. National Library of Medicine, and the New York Presbyterian website. Thank you so much for joining me for our birthday celebration of Dr. George Pompanicolo. 
Please join me on May 30th when we celebrate the life of probably the most interesting person I've ever researched, Camille Dugast. See you then.